Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tune into Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. That's Caleb Stein playing us in here at Origins, uh, broadcasting from the lobby of the Line Hotel here in Adams Morgan, D.C. The sound you missed, the, you didn't just get to hear whether the sa- was the sound of corks being pulled out of wine bottles. Uh, wish you could be here with us. I'm jo- joined by uh, Drew Baker and Lisa Hinton, brother and sister founders and, uh, at Old, Old Westminster in, uh, in a Maryland winery. I'm so excited that I'm like a little, I sound like I've already been drinking wine, but I haven't. I'm just really excited to have you guys here and uh, to talk about what you've been doing now for how long out there? Nine years. All of nine years. It's just amazing. And you know, Maryland wine is uh, a a phrase that probably has had kind of a checkered uh, existence. I think for a long time, I felt as as someone who loved wine in Maryland and, and loved Maryland, it was a little hard to love Maryland wine. And that's changed uh, in the last few years. And, and one of the big reasons is because of you guys. So thanks for that. Um, let's start and just talk a little bit about what, what you have going on at Old Westminster. Sure. sure. Yeah. So just quickly, you had mentioned that uh, it, it was hard to be affectionate uh, towards <laughs> Maryland wine, despite your love for the old line state. Um, I remember uh, in 2009 when we were sitting around our kitchen table, sort of dreaming about what we wanted this family vineyard and winery to be. We wrote down a vision statement on a napkin and we said, our, our mission is to put Maryland wine on the map. And back then it was hard to say with a straight face, you know, and uh, it's it's been so rewarding over the last nine years to, uh, to, to, in a lot of ways, see that vision coming to life. And uh, we'll taste a handful of wines today. We'll talk about uh, the experimentation and the wines that we're making and, uh, and, and also uh, the market that we're finding for these Maryland-grown wines in other states uh, around the country. That's fantastic. So nine years in, and you, you, what do you have? You're, you're growing grapes. And you're making wine. How many acres are you? Uh, you so, yeah, so we have um, on our home vineyard about eight acres planted, um, but we only about 30% of our production is grown on our home vineyard. We also work with a number of other growers throughout the state who um, really grow quality fruit and we work with really closely um, and source most of that exclusively. Um, additionally, just last December, we were able to um, find and purchase our dream farm, um, which was aimed at specifically growing the best fruit that Maryland can grow. Um, and we found that in Montgomery County. So Clarksburg, Maryland. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's 117 acres. acres. It's the new frontier. Oh, yes. my God. And have you, is anything planted there yet? Or No. So uh, we've been spending the last year and the next year um, 
preparing the ground. So farming is naturally exploitative. So we're, we're taking this rare opportunity to sort of give before we take. Uh, this involves um, uh, some diversity of cover crop rotations. We're doing some uh, quirky biodynamic preparations and really trying to uh, build a healthy farm organism before we plant our vineyard. Wow. And hopefully that carries through and is reflected uh, in the longevity and quality of wine that we're able to grow. What was it about that? piece of land that made it the dream farm so i mean what i love about wine and what i think has sort of captivated humans by wine for millennia is that more than most things it reflects the time and place where it's grown so the idea of growing the best possible wine that we can in maryland is obviously predicated on our ability to find a particular site that is really well suited to uh, the growing conditions required to yield exceptional fruit. And uh, that involves uh, a big hillside with great topography, um, uh, plenty of sun and wind, and lousy gravelly soil. So we want soil uh, that historically hasn't been farmed successfully. Um, the particular farm that we found, uh, we worked with uh, a world-renowned ge geologist to find this place. And uh, it's called Burnt Hill. And uh, I, uh, just a little backstory on why it's called Burnt Hill. This was a place where uh, the farmers uh, back in the day had a really hard time uh, growing successful uh, crops uh, uh, on this particular hillside. So instead, they did slash and burn uh, uh, horticulture. So they were uh, creating potash and, and lye for soap um, and... and uh, they called the place Burnt Hill because the traders that would go back to this place to get uh, their potash and lye said everything was always smoldering. And we think that this is indicative of the quality of wine that we're going to be able to make because so many years ago, the farmers said, this is a lousy hillside. We're not going to be growing uh, good crops for nutrition here. Let's just make our, let's just make our charcoal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds incredibly promising. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited. Why don't we... Um I just can't sit here and look at these wines anymore without trying something. But let's talk about what you have in front of us, because I think um, I was really excited when I first saw the I, I saw the labels uh, for these these wines, and these are three rosés that you guys uh, just got in the bottle, right? I think some of our, some of the Last Woodbury, week. some of the Woodbury group came out and and helped us put it in bottle. Cool. Yeah, it was a field trip day. Um, so we're going to try these, and let's let's talk about what we have here with these these three rosés. Sure. So, uh, Lisa, I'll give us a quick overview of the project, and then sure. you can take us through the specifics of each wine. Perfect. So, we wanted to really test the boundaries, the outer limits of what rosé can be, uh, and I'm hopeful that you'll find that diversity in this lineup. So, we have three distinct rosés that we call rarities, number one, two, and three, each produced in very different styles. So, this first one is called Light and Bright. Lisa, you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so the idea behind this rosé is it's a more traditional style, what kind of like fits into the average consumer's mind when they think rosé. It's light and bright and fresh and fruit forward. Um, the other two that we'll taste are a little bit unique in their style, um, but this one I'll just tell you a little bit about it. It is predominantly Syrah, um, has a little bit of Chambersin and a little bit of Malbec. So um, just a very traditional, light, lean style, um, very bright and refreshing. All fermented with wild yeast yep. and bottled without finding or filtration, which is sort of true of, of all of our wines these days. It's beautiful. It's just, it's summertime in a glass. Right. And uh, <laughs> if we get a little warm weather, it'll, it'll probably taste even better. I love it. Why did you guys, I think there's, there's a certain 
and you talked a little bit about how the fact, or it sounds like your wines are finding an audience outside of the state. And there's got to be a reason for that. And one of the things I'd put out there is that you guys are trying things that haven't been tried a lot in Maryland before. Um, the Pet Nat is, is one thing that I, I, I don't think I'd ever seen a Maryland grown and produced Pet Nat nope. before yours. Yeah, still not aware of any, uh-huh. uh, but there should be more, and I would, celebra- so. <laughs> I would celebrate that. Um, so uh, to, to my mind, anyone who is making delicious Maryland-grown wines here is a friend, and I think a rising tide floats all boats. So I think that's part of the fun of this industry is there's a small band of producers that are making really great things here and sort of trying to change uh, the overall perception of our industry. So anyone that's doing it great is, is, is a friend of the industry. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, we're finding a market outside of Maryland for these products because I, I, they're delicious and they have a story. And I think that when you have delicious things that have stories, that is that's marketable. Never mind that it's from Maryland. Um, you know, this these this pet nat is on lists in in Chicago and in San Francisco, and starting next month in New York. Uh, so it's, it's really cool that, um, to see that, you know, these sort of naturally made wild yeast, no finding, no filtration, we call them no makeup wines, um, are, are really what I think consumers, particularly educated, uh, and those on the younger end of the spectrum are really drawn to wines that aren't heavily manipulated and don't have the winemaker's fingerprints all over them. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And, you know, I was, I think I always pushed up against, or I resented in some way that, that a lot of what I was hearing about Maryland, what could happen with Maryland wines or even with the food and you know, other, other stuff that we produce here was just like in some way limited. And I was always thinking to myself, like maybe we really haven't tried everything or maybe we haven't. Is it really fair to kind of write it off? Because it seemed to, for a long time, it had been written off certainly around wine. There was just this, this kind of accept, accepted, this acceptance that we weren't going to get there. And now we are, and it's, it's the coolest thing ever. And, I, you know, as a chef, I love being able to put Maryland wine on the table next to the food that I do that isn't inherently from here as well. Um, and it also seems like there's an overlap or you guys are kind of catching people really where they are right now. Which, sure. What you're just saying about, um, you know, less manipulated wines. Natural wine is definitely a thing. Maybe not <laughs> in Baltimore so much right yet, but we'll get there. And maybe you'll help us get there. Can we try the next? Uh, I'd yeah. love to hear about the... Absolutely. We gotta give Jack some. No, don't do that. <laughs> Jack, say we're okay. All right, go for it. Go for it. Pour it out. All right, let's pour it out. We'll get you another glass. Too late. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can do that too. But. Okay. All right, so this is Rose Rarity number two, and this sort of um, again going back to what I had stated at the beginning, kind of pushing the boundaries of what is rose. This is sort of a hybrid in that it started as rose, but then was washed over the cap of of Syrah skins, which picked up a ton of color and texture. So this is the fruity, juicy rose mm. rarity. Lisa, you want to tell us what's in it? Yeah. So this is fifty five percent Cabernet Franc, forty five percent Merlot, and as Drew said. Originally, when we decided that we were going to make this style of rosé, it wasn't actually until this year. And we were sitting down at the blending table and kind of tasting the wide array of different styles of rosés that we had and really thought that this kind of um, 
push people to step outside of the bounds of what they traditionally think rosé is like the first one that you tried. Um, and it is a blend of two varieties. And then as Drew said, after the fermentation, um, those two varieties were actually put back over top of the skins of Syrah. And so it kind of picks up this earthiness, but also still has this fruity and juicy characteristic and just really interesting and different. Cap wash. Is that... Cap wash is the term that we use. I learned a new term. Yeah. And I'm tasting a wine here that I think is like going to be the grilling wine of the summer. In other words, if you move, if you got the grill going and you're, especially if you're grilling meat, if you're grilling, I mean, even burgers, but anything off the grill, this is the wine that you might want to have after you have number one. Absolutely. And chilled too. Yeah, absolutely. This wine reminds me, uh, Corey and I were actually talking, I, I sent him home with a bottle last night. And, uh, and he said that for him, this wine is like a northern Italian red, mm-hmm. something that is super lean and you want it, you want it chilled. And uh, again, it's perfect with, with anything on the grill. Yep. So I want to I ask you guys, as somebody that was once you know, sat, sitting around with my brother uh, and said, let's, let's start a restaurant. We didn't have a hell of a lot of a reason to believe that we could or should do that. How does a brother and two sisters uh, arrive at, the, at this at this? Uh, decision to, to uh, start a winery. Yeah, it's been a really fun ride. Um, <laughs> Ashley, like we had talked about, Ashley isn't able to be with us today. Um, but the three of us really, along with our two parents, whose farm is the one that we originally ended up planting, um, this kind of came into discussion when we were still in college. So we were really young and ambitious and had a farm um, and my parents were talking about selling it and we just had a really real conversation we said we want to produce something that we can share with the community um, and make a product that we're proud of and so the three of us just decided that this is something that we wanted to do and I'm a chemist and Drew's business and Ashley's marketing and we just really felt like if you're in I'm in yeah Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we jumped in head first. It's been a hundred miles an hour ever since. Yeah. And you know, there's there's always, you know, those obstacles that we have to that we have to overcome, both making a product that has a historically lousy reputation, working with family. I mean, it's like it's challenges all around, but I feel like we've kind of embraced that and For it's sure. kind of added a little grit or chip yeah. on our shoulder to what we're doing. I think so. And uh, and and I think it's made us more confident in what we're doing because again, you're always pressing up against you know, a naysayer and, and, and we've kind of learned to embrace that. Yeah. Is it also possible that not knowing what you don't know in this case was one of those times where it's like that actually maybe worked to your advantage? The fact that we're making really great wines and distributing them throughout the country is a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, if you ask me, it's, it's not possible. But, right. So, right. yeah. Uh, but that's, no, I mean, that's, I, I'm joking, obviously, because it's, but there was this kind of sense that it, it wasn't possible. You couldn't do it or whatever. And I think we just, um, a lot of, like you said, and it's not only that there are wineries now all over Maryland that are making great wine. Sure. And I think, it, like you said earlier, it's like, it's, 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 it's everybody's doing it. It's incredible. But, you know, and I think Maryland is a small microcosm of what's happening uh, elsewhere throughout the country and really throughout the world in that wine is going local. And mm-hmm. we're realizing that there's not so ma- much magic behind creating good products in, in different places. It's about good farming understanding your soil, understanding your climate, understanding that it's probably a bad idea to plant Zinfandel here, even though I might like that. Uh However, we can make amazing Albarino and we should grow the things that, that like to live here. And, uh, and what grows together goes together in so many ways. And, um, you know, Albarino is a, is a beautiful grape that loves it in this region and pairs perfectly with everything from the Chesapeake Bay. And, uh, and for that reason, I think we're just kind of coming into that place where we realize, you know, with good farming practices and understanding of our climate, we can make great wine here. 
one of the things I've been noticing is that, and you guys are a great example, is this: is you started off in kind of the home farm, and then you, re, I think, you probably through learning what you wanted from a from your from your farm from from your vines, you found the place that was going to be perfect. Absolutely. And it sounded. I think Bordy's done that recently. I mean, they've got there where they've been for decades, but they're out in um, Frederick County, I think. Yep, South Mountain. And Black Ankle kind of located them based on where you know not based on the fact that they had a farm somewhere, but where they thought they wanted to be with mm-hmm. their farm. I think that's, that's great for the state is that we're kind of, it used to feel like I've got a backyard, I'm gonna put some, some vines up, and now it's, it's more intentional. And Absolutely, and that's where we started, and my parents' farm happened to be pretty good for growing uh, grapes, and it was our case study, and we said, let's, let's plant 10,000 vines here and see what happens. And, and then um, as we grew in our confidence and our ability to produce something that we were proud of and that the market was thirsty for, uh, we said, let's go out and find the perfect site to expand. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, a, it's a progression. Obviously, yeah, us, us too. Um, recently, you, um, I know we've gotten wine from you in um, keg, right? Yes. And now we're getting getting it in cans. I kind of like the fact that you guys are kind of like you know, for a lot of the stuff I'm seeing, it's like anything you can do, I can do better. Because these this canned wine is amazing. You got to tell us about that. Yeah. So the the idea of the can wine was really born out of again we were sitting around the kitchen table and we just said that we want to be able to um, take a wine that ever, you know you care about where it's grown you care about how it's made and just make it accessible um, and be able to put it out into the community and take it with you where you know you can't always take a glass and um, corkscrew and bottle and it's not practical all the time but people still want and care about where their wines are from and want to make that accessible. So that was kind of how the idea was born to put wine into a can. Um, although it's been done before us, sure. but you know, obviously we were kind of the first in the mid Atlantic. Um, and so we just decided to take a product that was, you know, true to everything we believe in, which is still the native yeast, the no finding, no filtration, the still the natural wine and just put it in an alternative package. What, so what, what, tell us about the wines. So to this point, we've done seven. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, it's a lot to tell about. Um, but we have done anything from a skin fermented Pinot Gris, which is called an orange wine. So for people who are like kind of wine nerdy, um, they're still really interested in it to um, a red wine and then something that's fresh. We and did a fruity carbonic Cabernet Franc, yep. a couple variations of rosé. Yep. Like this is like real wine, but it's in a can yeah. and the art is fun. And if you don't care, it's delicious. If you do care, there's layers. And right. that's kind of what we were going for. I love was you know yeah. if if you if you're a wine nerd there's something here for you if you don't care it's still a really great product right and so much of this seems to be about like kind of determining like you guys were saying what's important what's important to you and what matters i you know i think a lot of us in restaurants have worked trying to do fine dining for a long time and all of a sudden what realize that we need to reach more people and the way to do that is thinking about price point and thinking about this experience and right you know great quote, fancy restaurants will always exist and that'll always be an experience I think that people enjoy, but there's so much more out there, so many more people to reach and, and different times and places to reach them. And you guys seem to be doing that in a way uh, that very few others are. The other thing that I'm really impressed with is the way you're thinking about your farming. And um, that one of the knocks on Maryland wine or grape growing has been that it's hard to do, quote, sustainably. And... Um, I'm not aware of anyone that's done, I don't think there are any certified organic vineyards yet in Maryland, right? 
There aren't, but I would love to chat about that. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah, that. Though. Yeah. So, um, what I'm really excited about. Let's let's talk about why that is. Maybe. And what are the challenges of growing grapes in the Mid Atlantic in Maryland? Well, we get roughly 60 inches of rain annually. Right. Uh, what does that mean for people? So when you're when you're growing a crop in a field as you would a grape vineyard, uh, and you're dealing with you can imagine when you're dealing with warm temperatures and high humidity and rain throughout the summer, uh, and you have long muggy warm nights uh there's high disease pressure you can imagine it's a petri dish for mold and mildew and and all sorts of rots so um uh barring you know basically the historical approach has been to step in uh as a vineyard manager and to just spray the heck out of everything with all sorts of fungicides and insecticides and and everything you basically nuke everything uh so so that we can sort of fend off disease that's been the historical approach right is there a new approach <laughs> i think so yeah yeah so um i i think in blendings uh you know uh lesser evolved materials i.e. organics so uh, or- organic farming is is not at all about doing nothing right it, it, it's about not using uh, uh, harmful or uh, uh, synthetic made materials um, I think if we can take uh, a blend of this approach uh, with 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 science which is to uh, move into uh, biofungicides which is to say that rather than to just spray materials that kill everything in these vineyards um, we should understand the interactions that are happening in this vineyard on a molecular level and come alongside nature and 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 uh, use materials that instead of killing everything cre- create balance uh, and and that I think is is the new line of thought that is driving sustainability um, so so we are this summer uh starting june 1st we're going to be piloting the sustainability and practice program on the east coast so uh the sip organization sustainability and practice they're ba- they're based out of california there's several hundred vineyards in california uh, and up and down uh the west coast that are certified sustainable uh there is uh one in uh, one vineyard in arizona one in texas one in michigan and nothing on the east coast so we're going to be piloting this program uh, beginning on June 1st. And uh, we're really excited to kind of get in the weeds and, 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 and discover like, hey, can we get rid of herbicides altogether? Can we get rid of uh, synthetic insecticides altogether? And then from an environmentally, uh, from an environmentally impact standpoint, how can we limit uh, or, or um, you know, what is the best practice to managing disease in, in, in a healthy way so that we have a great, so that we have a great product and we're being good stewards of this slice of the earth that we inhabit. Right. I mean, we, you mentioned the, how well the pet net goes with uh, uh, fish and shellfish from the Chesapeake Bay. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the motivators for us to try to think about how we source, you know, so much farming. Um, in this region affects the Chesapeake and that we have this amazing opportunity to do something about it if we are a little more thoughtful about um, the food that we eat and it's what I think about a lot and it sounds like you guys but does it end up does do these practices end up in the glass as well do, as a winemaker do you believe that natural Absolutely. And I think that we're already, we're closer in the cellar than I think that we have been to this point in the vineyard because we have, um, over the last couple of years, really taken um, steps to be as hands-off as possible. Now, that doesn't mean careless or thoughtless. It means being even more careful um, and even more thoughtful in the cellar, but really um, 
like Drew said, just being a good steward with what we have and just um, trying to really shepherd the grapes into a beautiful product instead of manipulating them to what we want them to be. Speaking of which, what did you, how did you shepherd this uh, rosé number three? (laughs) So rosé number three is really fun. It's probably the most different of the group. So this is um, even thirds of Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, and Malbec. Um, and then, as you just learned, cap wash. It was cap washed over some Cabernet Franc skins for four days, which means it kind of soaked up some of the color. Um, but then it actually aged in French oak, neutral French oak barrels for 18 months. Wow. Um, so you can tell it's kind of lost some of that color, but it aged oxidatively in barrels because it can breathe. Uh-huh. Um, and it really just developed some beautiful, um, kind of more mature flavors and aromas. Um, so a little bit of wood, a little bit of fruit forward, um, and just a really intricate product. Beautiful, a delicate, yeah. but yeah. but still like a little brawny in a way. Mm-hmm. It, it does. It has yeah. broad shoulders yes. for a rosé. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the range, the, uh, you know, like the three wines here are just... It's They're just, really fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something for, not for everybody, but for like almost any circumstance you can imagine in the summertime. Right. Yeah, and that was really part of the vision from the beginning was can we put together a, a little simple lineup that people can enjoy and can taste through the three and sort of discover, you know, the, the limits of what rosé can be from something that is light and bright to fruity and juicy to bold and savory. Yep. I, I, I would almost never do this, but I just, these wines are so great and we've been sitting here talking and drinking them. And I, I other than Woodbury Kitchen where they are or will be very shortly, where else can can folks find these? I mean, we, The best places on our website are at the farm. Okay. Yeah. Because they, they are rarities. Restaurants. They but are rarities. They are so good. <laughs> they're worth they're worth uh, seeking out, and they're especially they're beautiful with these labels that you guys had commissioned, yeah, right, from an artist that you know. Yes. It's it's just spectacular product from start to finish. Thank you. Um, let's see. I, after. I, I I think <laughs> that I think that we should taste this Petnat Albarino, certainly, um, and and we can talk a little bit about about this product. So. Um, Petnat Albarino. Albarino is a grape variety that's native to Northwest Spain, and it's finding a lovely home for itself here uh, on the East Coast. Uh, Rias Baixas, which is sort of the spiritual home for this grape variety. Um, in this region, they have a really heavy influence from the sea, a heavy maritime influence, and they also get 60 inches of rain annually. So over time, this variety has evolved to have really thick skins, high natural acidity, which are great preservative measures uh, against mold and mildew and all the things that we battle. So um, this variety just, it likes it here. Uh, And we're able to make really great wines from it, bracing acid, and we said this is perfect for sparkling wine. This is produced in the natural or ancient method, predate champagne by a couple of hundred years. Um, It's basically bottle conditioned with primary fermentation. So the, the, the sugar and yeast that were born in the vineyard are what carried this wine all the way through to carbonation in the bottle. Nothing's added, no yeast, no nutrients, no sugar. It's not blended, it's not fined, it's not filtered. There's no free SO2 in this finished wine. So this is like just a really fun reflection of of Maryland in a bottle. No, is there a dosage? No. No dosage, yeah. So uh, yeah, again, unlike champagne, right. you know, there's there's still lees in the bottom of the bottle, and it's finished under crown cap, and that's it. So yeah, no dosage. So my experience with this wine is is where things really shifted a little bit for me, which was I I didn't know you were doing it, and I didn't really know anything about the wine, and I I had to, it was like a a double take, is that I tried it, and then I had to look at the label, and and I you know 
are all of a sudden realize what it is. It's like <laughs> Petnat from Old Westminster. These guys are really doing it. Like, in other words, it, I, it didn't come to me as like, oh, here's a wine that Old Westminster's doing that you should try. It was like, I'm because drinking, it's local. Yeah, right. It's drinking some. This is really good. What is this again? What? Really? <laughs> and that was an amazing moment for me. But, but I love that when I get that because you know I, I'm somebody who thinks I know everything about everything. Sure. <laughs> and you totally blew my mind. So thank you for that. Thank you for this incredible wine. Yeah. Well, thank Cheers. You. Cheers.